Hello and welcome everybody, my partners in crime and as always I say that in the nicest possible way. Now today's true crime is the case of Robert William Picton. Now Willie Picton or the pig farm uh, serial killer, however you'd like to call him. So this case is about him. So again there is graphic content in this case and there is, as usual I'm not going to hold back on what I say. It's a little bit different this case because I want to talk not only about this case and about him but about this area of where he got his victims from. So we're going to look at victimology. We're also going to look at profiling in an area like this. We're going to look at the law a little bit because it's Canadian law and the things that happened in the investigation. Again, this investigation took a long time to even get started and then even when it was started, it took a long time to complete and get this man. And then the court case, the evidence that needed to be presented to the jury was uh, shocking, but also took about a year to compile. So this is the Robert Picton case. And I think throughout this case, I'm just gonna call him Picton, really. Uh, he was born on the 24th of October, 1949, and is a Canadian serial killer. And he was convicted of secondary murder, a little bit of law, as how I explain that, of six women. But he did admit, and then he revoked that, um, to killing 49 women plus, really. He's such a liar. I probably say it's more than 49. I, I, you know, 49, I think, is a figure that he come up with, really. He said he wanted to make it around 50, you know. Uh, but you never know with um, Picton. Um, I think there's many, many more victims out there that we don't know about and probably will never be found. But before we actually go into this killer's and the killings, I suppose, the murders of these victims. I think we need to understand more about this area of, of the geographic area of where this predator got his victims from, really. Because to tell you the truth, it was like a feeding ground. And I don't think there was only one uh, serial killer at work in this area. I think there was multiple serial killers. And I think even today, there's still multiple serial killers within this area. And I know that people were coming in, some of these serial killers had either come in from other states of America into Canada, actually even come from overseas, um, to really use this area as their killing fields. And it is shocking, really, how they got away with it and how, they, how this area was designed. So I want to talk to you about this Vancouver area and this Lower East Side. And it's called, actually, this Lower Track. They call it lower track. Uh, I think it's quite a derogatory term, really, lower track. But I, 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 to tell you the truth, I don't think there's any other word for it, really. I think what happened in this area is that over the years from 1971 up in Canada, um, they had prostitution problems, they had drug problems and everything else in other little areas. But then everyone sort of congregated or was pushed in to this area, moved on, you know, moved on and moved on. For various reasons, there was um, some games and different things held there, you know, um, that brought a lot of tourists and then brought, where there's tourists, you have prostitution, you have drugs, you have all the criminality that goes along with that. Because people like that are homed in and mindset, well, if there are lots of people there, we can earn money in, in various different ways. And I think this is why this you know, Lower East Side of Vancouver 
became this um, area where everyone seemed to go or wasn't just willingly going the you know the um, you know officials and stuff were pushing people into this area and it's a really bad idea to to have a concentration of people I mean up to 10,000 at one point on these streets of this Lower East Side day and night so you had the prostitutions uh, prostitutes there doing, you know doing their thing then you had the pimps then you had the drug dealers and then you had the cartels moving in because where there's money to be made the more drug dealers are going to come in and the bigger firms of drug dealers are going to come in you know when we took we're not talking about a little drug dealer on the side of a corner that's telling you you know i don't know how, i don't know how much crack is what whatever it was um we're now talking about the cartels moving in with thinking this is now organized crime now running this lower east side of vancouver this you know low track um as it's called and i think what happened was with this um, um loads of over ten thousand people congregating in this area driven to this area through necessity whether they wanted money or whatever they was going to do then it was attracting criminality it just became an area that they called this low track and I think that must come from the saying on the other side of the tracks you know you have one side and you have the other I think that's where it comes from I'm not really sure but locally that's what this area is called the reason I want to tell you about this area because it's important it's important to understand how serial killers work 49 women, I think he killed, or he said he killed. When you think about Picton, he lives 17 miles away from this area. So when we look at this geographical area and in your profile, geographic profiling or profilers use to have a look at how serial killers are, one, getting their victims, victim type, really. Victim type, this was absolutely... A feeding ground for these people and then when you look at the area you may go five miles in the geographical area 10 miles 15 miles 20 miles out and to see how then you know when you put all these cases up to where these people have gone missing too because don't forget these bodies wasn't found there was many bodies just missing um, reported missing some weren't reported missing for three years because of their lifestyle it's really important to understand about this area. It's a shocking area, really. So you've had all these people either gone there or by choice to make money. They've been pushed in there by other agencies to get them out of other communities, to push them into this area. So now you've got a really depraved area going on. You have criminality going on day and night. You have drug addiction at first, just your general drug addiction until the cartels moved in now how cartels work and how they get people onto the crack and cocaine or whatever they're going to take and most of these are on crack and many other um, you know different drugs they started moving in and giving out the drugs very cheaply so the people it was affordable to these people now a lot of these all of these girls actually that were murders, murdered were prostitutes for necessity, right? They either want to feed their self or they want to feed their habit or they want to feed their family. 
So when these drug dealers, these drug dealers moved in, these cartels moved in to start really their organised drug crime in this area, it was very cheap for the first couple of months. They kept the prices really low. It may have cost you £10 rather than, I don't know, 50 But what that does, especially with things like crack and ice and all these different things they are using, it gets you hooked, doesn't it? Some of these drugs are so addictive, after one hit on some of these drugs, they've got you anyway. So as then people are coming in and more people are getting onto these drugs, the cartels then think, okay, now we've got you, now we're going to put the prices up. Because now you need it, don't you? You have to have this drug. So <laughs> the problem is then with that, now you're going to do anything to feed that habit. And this is what happened in this community in this lower track area. That's really what happened. Then you have the issue then, is when people are so addicted to drugs that they would do anything. They go into more prostitution than they were in before. You don't have to just see one client or two clients a day or 10 clients a day to feed your family, to try and put a roof over your head. You now have to see about 100 because or more and do it very cheaply because you're trying to get that money for your next fix. Now this is what serial killers understand. Now Picton is well known not to be highly educated at all, minimal education actually. But serial killers don't need education do they? Because serial killers brain doesn't work like ours. They look at things different. They're usually very charismatic. Life and soul of the party. Talk about themselves a lot. They understand human behaviour. That's all they need to know. Because all what drives a serial killer is to kill. And the victims here, the victimology of these, these people, even, you know, for anybody that wants to kill. This is why we had lots of people then, lots of different serial killers coming in and out of this area throughout from 1971 upwards, really, working in this area. Because it was an easy area to get a victim. Now prostitution, they were all prostitutes and I've said this before and they were drug addicts. Now some of these kids on this street, I'm going to say kids because that's what they were, not the ones that he killed or not that we know of, but the ones working at prostitutes and it has been reported that even today from the age of 11 these people are working on the streets, these children are working on the streets to either feed a drug habit or to feed themselves and somewhere to live because their parents are on drugs and prostituting and they go into it. There's a lot of mental health in this area and this is a lot that Picton targeted was mental health. He targeted one of the girls that he murdered. Um, I think she was 22 but she had a mental age of 10. She was working as a prostitute because she'd got onto drugs, she'd had a drug habit, she was addicted she was working on the streets, she met him, and that was one of the ones they found. Or parts of her, or her DNA, because there wasn't a lot left of these victims. So for Picton, he had this pig farm, 17 miles north of Vancouver, uh, this lower track. And of course, I think he was, they think he, his probably crimes dated back, probably about 1971. That's what they think. Very difficult with Picton because he won't tell you 
anything really and whatever it says is a lie. So he had this farm and he run this farm with his brother David and David I don't think they found any DNA on evidence of David and this these killings but David himself had also convictions for uh, sexual offences against women anyway but this is David is not the one we're talking about we're talking about Robert or Willie Pigton. I think they had a sister as well that worked on this farm but what they did with this farm is you know crafty really he's not silly may not be educated but the man ain't stupid not really he's certainly not stupid to have got away with murder for as long as he did plus they had this farm and it was the pig farm now I'm going to say it now pigs eat anything actually they can even grind down bone so if you want to get rid of a body usually a pig would eat the lot and there was a massive pig on this farm that used to just walk around massive and a lot of people have said that about this pig but it was a pig farmer so of course you're going to have the slaughterhouses you're going to have everything that goes with this sort of farm and grinding machines and they'll come into it in a little while later but this pig used to wander around it was quite an aggressive pig now and a massive pig now one pig really wouldn't take long to eat a body not really it would go to nothing so then you think did he know he knew he would have known that he would have known that a pig would have eaten anything anyway but what they did with this farm they made part of this farm like this other barn into a non-profit organization and said it was for parties and um for local community groups and stuff to run events and stuff like this so they was trying to run this farm as a charity really now this comes with when you run this sort of thing with very very good tax you know exemptions really which will save you lots of money but what they did the sister the brother and him so I don't know the sister's name but it's David and the, the brother they was all on this farm they had massive parties yes they did they used it for what they said they was going to use it for but not in the exact way you see they started then to have parties I don't think any of them was a community organisation party or for sort of, you know, vulnerable people at all. So I think um, the Hells Angels used to go there. He'd have massive raves. I mean, massive raves. Hundreds and hundreds of people. Because you're outside on this farm, aren't you? There would be drugs there. There'd be drink there. There'd be prostitution there. So now you took, or what he's done, is he's took this Picton, this lower track environment onto his pig farm. So a lot of these girls went missing from that, from this, this, these parties. Now it's not parties that me and you would ever go to. So this charity or non-profit organization, however you want to call it, was called Piggy's Palace Good Time Society. Well, that's telling you something, isn't it? Piggy Palace, Good Time Society. And there is no way that the government were going to have this. They had, I think, so many complaints. They had found out after a few years that this was no way a non-profit organisation. It wasn't doing anything that it was meant to be doing. He was making an absolute load of money, him and his brother and his sister, at this sort of running of this sort of business. So I think what he'd done 
to make more money and he converted a slaughterhouse so it's a, like a barn type thing but it's a slaughterhouse and he converted it or they converted it into that I don't think these people really cared where this party could have been held outside on the land for all they cared there was a lot going on at these parties now this also gave then Pigton access didn't it to the Vancouver sex workers running or working along this lower track so they knew him they met him now listen to tell the truth we know many many people many many of these women never made it away from this party they never left that farm ever some he used to then go into um, this lower track area and pick up um, prostitutes because they knew him they trusted him didn't they they knew he was going to take him back and they was going to you know have the drugs and have the drink and but they didn't really realize that he was actually going to kill them so as these girls then started going missing you're talking about women and young girls I think his age range which they know about I think was from 20 to about 46 47 years old could be a bit older so that's the sort of geographical area we're talking about when we look at victims the victimology of it he was 17 mile radius from this area they knew him he was this type of person that would frequent these places he had these parties with hell's angels with all these drugs and everything i think up to 2000 i think it was in the end he was having the government shut that down and that was it so once the government shut them parties down he had to then continue didn't he to go out into the low track area to pick up these girls and that's exactly what he did so now let's look at the victimology here why are these victims then did he have a thing for prostitutes no it didn't matter who they were listen if this man was going around killing middle-class women and women were disappearing at such a rate like these prostitutes were the police would have been out in force wouldn't they at that I think in a 20 year or 10 two yeah 20 years there was over 240 or 250 people reported missing just in this one area now that's a lot of people and this is the people they know about that have gone missing because we're talking about a transit community here aren't we we're talking about an area where officials and people and other you know other things have happened to make these people come into this area but because this area was so transit yes they could have gone on their own volition and they could have gone anywhere they could have left this area a lot of people did but a lot of people stayed but when you're talking about when we're talking about a serial killer and he's looking for these victims when you have over 10,000 people in this in this condensed area of this low track area in, in uh, Lower East Side of Vancouver he didn't have to go far did he there wasn't a lot of work to do to find victims serial killers are always going to go for the easy victims and the thing is is that when you have now victims that may not have a home a lot of these people living on the streets People may not have seen them for many years anyway or many months because of the work and the lifestyle they do. These are drug addicts we are talking about. These were mental institution um, people that had been in institutions for very severe mental health 
And then at the same time when all this was going on, Vancouver literally opened the doors and just threw them all out on the streets. And so where do you think they went? They went to this low track. So now we have very vulnerable people on the streets. So now the drug dealers got hold of them. They're now into prostitution. Now one of them victims, you know, as I said, had a mental age of 10, who was working as a prostitute to feed a drug habit because some drug dealer had got him hooked on crack. And now, he's work, now she's working for him as a prostitute to feed her habit. The, the life, and so the, this Picton understood this lifestyle. To us, this lifestyle, uh, the stress of even living like that must be absolutely awful. And the fear, these people haven't got fear of being killed or taken. They haven't. They're so addicted to their drug that they have to do it. And a mental age of 10, a mental age of 10 is a child living like this. Other victims here, and I can't mention all their names because there's loads of them, so I put up slides actually um, for you to have a look through. But I'm going to want to tell you about some of the characters of these people that this man murdered and took from these street. These victims may have been prostitutes, they may have been drug addicts, but they were human beings. They had a right to live. Now it's up to them whether they were prostitutes or whether they were drug addicts or both. That's choice isn't it? We all have a choice what we do. And if they died through drug overdoses or disease, because there was plenty of disease going about here at this time, sexual transmitted diseases, lots of it, hepatitis, AIDS, there's lots going on in this area at this point, so a lot of victims or a lot of people had already died from that. But that's their choice, isn't it? A serial killer doesn't give you the choice. He doesn't care about you. And I think this is the issue with this case. Yes, we are talking about prostitutes and people say, oh, there are only prostitutes. And I think this was the mentality of this case, really, of why it wasn't so investigated so early. People knew it was happening. So as I said, if you have, you know, women like us, or men, you know, working class, community, had a life, a bank, a job, people would realise you're missing, wouldn't they? This list would have been, was compiling and compiling up of many, many different women. I think the list started at 16. And it was a local community area that was saying about their own people going missing and compiling lists and giving them to the police in Vancouver and saying, listen, something's going on. This is happening here. These women are going missing never to be seen again what's happening and they said it's transit it's a transit community they've just gone they're drugs you know they're drug addicts and so they come and go they come and go well you know 16 compiled on a list that was seen one day and gone the next is telling you something so then you had this investigator um with the police and who he did take notice of it um, but it took him a while, actually, I think, to get other people involved and to, to sort of understand what's really going on here. Then you had a criminal profiler, 
and he was saying listen there is a serial killer at work one of many at work here the profile that he done is what you would normally do the problem is these bodies weren't turning up there was no bodies these people just disappeared off the face of the earth there was nothing of them well not what we knew of then so a profiler usually works as i said on the radius on the type of victim so you're looking at everything like that and usually when you find a body you're looking whether it was placed whether it was staged whether you know stabbed raped however you want to do it they have their own serial killers have their own way of doing things was the victims white was they black was they was it a mixture was it men was it women was it both this is one you're looking at a profile so they knew by the profile and this profile was very good that they were all women they were all prostitutes and they were all disappearing at various times so when you're looking at the time scale say you had a woman going or five women going missing in, in a two-month period you'd be looking at whether a, a perpetrator was coming in and out of this area or whether this perpetrator lived close enough that he could multiple murder like Picton did and that's what the profilers do they break down this case now don't forget there's no investigation at the moment into these women because no one cares really the police don't care they're transit some of these women that he murdered wasn't actually reported missing for three years because of their lifestyle it's it's very difficult for then to to do a, a profile on a killer when you don't have everything and especially when you don't have a body because then you can tell whether that body was killed the same as that body there was no bodies here these people just disappearing well I can tell you now that this man wasn't listened to at all again he was discarded the same as the local communities were discarded in their real push to get something done because people really realize that something is really wrong here this went on I think for about uh, four years before this was actually investigated so we don't know how many victims Picton actually killed we don't and I don't as I said before you can't really believe this man anyway in what he says you really can't I think the, the only way is that they found there was a certain amount of victims was why was how they found DNA because that's all what was left of these victims so I think we'll go into that now so Picton he would pick these girls up or he would already have them at the pig farm the parties he would go on he would um, his method of killing was different he was sexually this was almost sexually motivated crime this because we all know that he raped them there's many people that said you know people that got away and stuff that's things he was very violent and he was a rapist anyway so he would rape them he would torture them he had a shotgun long one and at the end of the shotgun he would have a dildo now that dildo had DNA evidence of a few victims also his DNA on there as well he so we know he we know it was sexually done also he would 
trying to stab them. He stabbed them, shot them. He then chopped them up. He then put them, I think he decapitated some and kept their heads in freezers. He would then feed some to the pigs to get rid of it. But he also had a grinding machine in the slaughterhouse where he sold other meat. And DNA, human DNA, was found in that grinding machine. So it is alleged, really, that, um, I think this is what's so controversial about this case, is that the meat that he sold also had human remains in it to get rid of the parts. I think the only thing I can say about that is that we don't know, do we? Because he's never actually going to tell you, is he, really? But when you find DNA in a grinding machine <laughs> where it's been used to grind up meat for sale, I think we can all assume what happened to these girls. I think we can. I think we, we know it, really. Shocking, really. He then um, would keep certain artefacts of theirs, their wallets, their IDs, if they had any, um, personal items and stuff in his trailer. Now, a man that worked for him was a man called Bill Hiscox. Now, he had done, he'd worked on this farm for, I think, three years. And he had noticed that these girls were around this farm and, you know, even at some of the parties, but even after the parties, these girls would come in and they'd be in the trailer. And all of a sudden, these girls were no longer around. And then a few months later, you'd see missing signs put up, missing posters put up for these girls. So he did ring the authorities and he did an anonymous call to say, mm, I think something you need to look into this, Robert, because, you know, he, he sort of said something going on and he did say about this farm and he's the one that said about this big pig. He also said it was a very eerie place. But listen, it's a slaughter place. They are eerie. But he also said about Picton's trailer. And he said in there, there was many, many wallets and IDs and personal items and victims. Um, and he, he never really asked, I think, why. I don't think anyone did ask Picton anything really. Picton used to like to talk about himself but he did, I think we've had a few witnesses here and we'll go through a few witnesses after but um, Hiscock, he's the one that actually worked there and I think he's the one that really said a lot that brought this case out. So anyway this investigation before it even got going was four years and I think on the time it actually started to get going you'd had a lot of people now including this Bill Histon um, or Hiscock, sorry, um, giving the police sort of information, even though it was anonymous and he didn't want to get involved because I don't think, I think he knew something was going on. And then all of a sudden, the list went from 16 to like 100 and something. And then they finally started to investigate. So what they did, because of the information of the wallets and the different stuff, going on found at this farm or being alleged was at this farm they then got the warrant the search warrant to go and search for missing people so they did and they searched the thing and not a lot of us found they didn't do a massive search they didn't do an in-depth search i think they just done a search of it i think some items were but we are talking about now and this is when i say about 
you know, these perpetrators when they choose their victim and the victimology. Who is going to believe a prostitute? A prostitute, by nature, sees a lot of people, sexually or otherwise. A drug dealer, or a drug addict, sorry, sees a lot of people for many, many different reasons, including buying drugs. So when they found stuff at Picton's trailer, the girls left it there. There was no evidence of these girls being there. They could have left their stuff, and I think that's what he said. But the police wasn't that bothered, I don't think, because of they were prostitutes. Also, because of how difficult it is to prove that a prostitute hadn't given consent for sex, really. He could have paid for sex. She was there. She's left. She's left her stuff in payment. He could have said anything. He could have said anything. Plus, they didn't know if they had, as they kept saying, this, they were transit. But the list was getting too big now to ignore the pressure now. And I think this investigator is the only one, the investigator and the profiler, that's really pushed and pushed for this. Or else this man would have still been going, to tell you the truth. He was getting away, literally, with murdering anybody he could get his hands on. No matter what age, who you were, what you did, and the only thing that really stopped him going for our middle class women was he didn't want to get caught and his victims were so easy to get. That's the only reason he didn't go for all women. He only went for a certain type that he thought he could get away with it, no one would care, no one would look, and a lot didn't. And to this day some of these girls are still not found. So I think when we say Picton was uneducated, maybe in the sense or the sense that we think about education, but certainly not how a serial killer thinks about his prey and how he's going to get it and what he's going to do. This man got away with it for years. So this farm was searched, I think in 1997 for the first time, this general search looking for missing people. Then it searched again in 1998. Now, <laughs> at that point, he was meant to be put under, or this farm was meant to be put under surveillance because they knew something was going on. There was no proof. Now, they, as I said, the searching didn't, wasn't in-depth search. It was just a search. They didn't DNA test. They didn't do any of that stuff. It was just literally quick search, couldn't find the girls, found a few items, not enough to do anything, but enough that it should have warranted, and it did warrant this place to be looked at and surveillance put in place. They didn't do it. They didn't do it. For many years, I think 2002 was the last time this property was searched, and this time they used the search um, quote, quote, uh, criteria as um, illegal weapons. Once they then found the illegal weapon on this property, that's when the initial, initial search, that was in 2002, took place in this farm and also in the slaughterhouse. And that is where they found the DNA of 30 different women, just the DNA. They opened up the freezer and they found severed heads of some they found body parts of others. 
That's when they examined the grinding machine that grinds the meat for sale and found human DNA in that. There wasn't much left of these bodies. Then they found the shotgun with the dildo on it, uh, the DNA on that. They found sped bullets from the shotgun. They found night vision goggles. So whether he was hunting these women, we don't know. We just don't know what he did. He's quite a sadistic killer, this one. Um, they saw, they found the saw that um, he chopped them up with and um, that had DNA or human DNA on it from a few different victims as well. And this is how this case was now going. Now when we talk about DNA evidence, when we talk about the process of forensic testing and the cost of a trial, we look at the DNA um, on a standard just one murder trial, say, or a couple of murders, or a rape and a couple of murders, say. You can really look, you know, at a small budget being £300,000 and a murder trial in this country costing around a million pounds to run. Well, you're talking about looking for forensic evidence for 30 now plus people in this area. The forensic bill would have been massive anyway. It would have just been massive. Plus the trial, I think this is the biggest investigation in the end, it turned out, I think it was a three year investigation, this investigation. It turns out that um, you know, the bill for this would have just been massive. But the problem is, is that when this case broke, and it broke for a few reasons really, but mainly because I think people and the police thought by this time knew um, but they just couldn't prove it was him. There was other people in the frame for some of these murders. I think you had um, Gary Ridgway, which we've done before. I've looked at Gary Ridgway's case. Now, Gary Ridgway did come into and out of Canada a few times, but I don't think he's up for any of these murders. There are many, many more serial killers. I think up to seven serial killers, and we'll be going through them in different cases. That were frequent or frequented this place at one point or another or travelled into this place. Again, I'm talking about serial killers and their victimology. They understand it better than anybody. They know what they're looking for. They know how to get away with it. And if you've got this congregation of people, of up to 10,000 people at a time, which are living below the poverty line, they are living on the streets, they are drug addicts, they are prostitutes, they are young, they're vulnerable, their mental health is, you know, we just open these doors and threw them all out. This, you're just giving the serial killer an open door here. Of course they're going to travel. Of course they are. Easy victims. Serial killers want to kill. That's what they do. Killing is their thing. And if they can do it with easy victims, happy days, isn't it, for them. And this was easy pickings. And this was easy picking for Picton, without a doubt. And we just, I, he says, when he was arrested, finally arrested in 2002, and I think he went to trial with a sentence in 2007. He said, I, I think while he was on, um, in prison waiting, you know, on remand waiting to go to court, they put an undercover police officer in the cell to get some more information about how many more people he killed and he said to this undercover police officer well it's, I think it's 49 I'd like a round number of 50 really 
uh, and really, you know, I was a little bit sloppy and that's the only reason I got cool. I got sloppy because as the years were going on and this man wasn't then being investigated and he was doing more and more kills because this is what happens. The kills are not always then giving you that same sense, are they? They need more and he needed more. So I think the only reason this case, and there was a lot of issues in this case because you had the jury now um, that had to gonna be listening and had to look at all this evidence. Now when you're looking at a jury and you're gonna give a lot of forensic evidence, because remember there's no actual, there is a few body parts, heads and stuff like that, but there isn't everything. So them, yes, they can see and they can understand this is what this person's done. But again, you have to think with a jury, is that a jury have their own mind. So you need this evidence to come across. Really, when you're talking about a criminal case here and you have a jury and you have a case like this, which is so massive, and you haven't really got the evidence, not when you really think about it, because these women were prostitutes. We had other farmhands working on this farm. We had other people on this farm. He had parties of 2,000 people on these farms at some points. Any of them could have killed these women, couldn't they? He could have said, yes, I've used a dildo to have sex with them. That's why my DNA's on it. It didn't, may not at the time, but on the end of a shotgun, really. There was a lots of reasons why you had to be very careful with this case. Now, at first he was charged with six counts of murder. The thing is with six counts of murder and when you've got 49. Um, the 49, he said, when he was in prison and, and he was with the undercover officer. We know there was over 30 bodies found just in this um, farm alone. He could have had other dumping areas. He could have. We knew there was other DNA evidence that had been ground up. We knew that. But to say this to a jury and to say that he did it, you know, he's the one that did this to these people. When you have the defence saying that these were prostitutes, multiple partners, lots of people in this farm. And then how can you specifically say it was him? This is the difference when you're looking at this case. So yes, he was charged with six murders. It's first degree. But that was dropped then to second degree murder, really, because the intent, he could have said, they died while having sex and a heart attack. I didn't, I didn't know what to do with the body, so I dumped them. There's lots of things that was going on in this, but also with this case, there was so many charges put against him that the judge had to then split it up. One again to make it easier for the jurors. So you had six counts and then 20 counts and another six, you had lots of different counts going through this in this trial. But I think what the judge had to do was direct the jury, really. And this comes in a little bit later because he had to give direction to the jury because then you have, as I said before, all this evidence that's coming in. It can be overwhelming for a jury to see this and hear this stuff. It can also, when you're doing these sort of cases, you're telling the story, aren't you? You are trying to get across to individuals, lay people, or laypersons, that this man actually did this crime and this is how he did this crime and the DNA evidence shows that yes, these victims are there 
and his DNA was on certain things like the saw and that, but it was his place of work. So there's lots of th different things, and I think this is why they went for second degree, because the jury couldn't understand how they could get him for first degree murder. But as the judge directed the jury about the sentencing, I think, because he gave him the sentence of first degree murders for the six, and he stayed at the other 20, that means at any point these other 20 can come up. So he, the judge, the, when you do something like that, you are always open to an, an appeal. And I think the judge knew that, but I think the judge wanted Picton to pay for what he did. It was evident, really, overwhelming, that this man had done it. And because of his, you know, statements that he'd made and stuff um, to undercover officers and things, that sort of helped back it up. I think this was a very difficult case and a very expensive case and I think it took a year to compile just the forensic evidence alone to be put forward to the jury, a year. I think the case itself actually lasted about two to three years. It was an ongoing, from start to finish it was about two and a half years I think. So it's a very expensive case. As I said the forensic testing would have been massive because you're trying to do multiple things and, and multiple victims here. So I think the judge just or, or, or the prosecution just then going for the six murders help this case be a safe case because if then you're trying to bring in others like we all want justice for victims but you can't have it if there is any possibility that this man could have walked free because the lack of the evidence with these ones you, you're trying to get a jury to believe too much to take in too much information and any mistake in that or where they may not have found well hang on, he, may, he couldn't have done that one so I think this is why they stuck to the six um, victims in this and then stayed the other many many more to get the conviction so he was convicted I think in 2007 in the end of um, second degree murder and it's for that reason why it was second degree murder murder but he got a life sentence without the possibility of parole, I think, for 25 years. That would be the same that had been if it was first-degree murder. Now, of course, he did appeal. Of course he did. They all do. And I think in this province of Canada, um, it, I don't think you even needed grounds for appeal, but the, they did, actually. His defence team did put in grounds for appeal, and it was a direction to the jury from the judge. Uh, that appeal was lost and um, he will remain in prison, hopefully, for the rest of his life, because you wouldn't want this man out at all. No way. Now, why he was in prison, and he was in uh, a smaller prison, not a state penitentiary, not a big penitentiary, uh, at first, he wrote a book about himself and about the crimes, and these poor victims, really. You've had some that's had their cases not come to court, so their families are devastated. You now have a man that's killed these women now making money from it because how we done that because even in Canada you can't make money you can't from crime uh, any any proceed of crime you can't but what this man did he <laughs> wrote a book rambling really of about 200 odd pages whatever it was he wrote but quite a lot of it and then he got it snuck out of the prison by another inmate and then it was a self-wrote book put up online and then it was picked up then by a publisher outside Canada and then it was I think on Amazon 
it was being sold on Amazon for about 20 odd dollars. Now, uh, then he would have proceeds of crime, without a doubt. Someone's making money from this book, probably him. So what's happened is, since then, is that there's been lots of calls for Amazon and stuff to take this book down, I don't know if it has or not, but, you know, I don't know. But I think what happened was the, the families were so fed up, really, because they'd waited so long for this man to go to court anyway, let alone what he did to their family members and how he treated and sort of how he acts, then has the, the gall to write a book and get it published and make money from it. So they sued him. They sued him. I think they sued the Canadian government. They sued um, the Mounted Police, the police force, because of this lack of inquiry going on. Now, there was a lot of reasons why this case at first wasn't out to the public. Again, you know, the courts have put a uh, media block on it. And that's always a good reason because you don't want, this would have gone viral anyway, and then you don't want to have that jury influenced in any way because you're going to lose your case if that's what you do, because you can't have that in, how you need to have fair trial to prosecute this man fairly so that he couldn't use that part as an appeal and get off. But also I think they've done it to hide, really. Their lack of interest in this case for, for the four years previous to when they started this investigation, I think this was a lot to do with it as well. So when this, the family sued these people, all these groups, they was awarded 50,000 Canadian dollars to um, victims and their families sort of thing. But they would not admit liability. They said no. And, you know, to be fair, listen, fair enough, this case is a difficult enough case anyway. It's a difficult enough case to when you've got an area like this where you have pushed people into it or you've created an environment where these people are attracted to which will then in turn attract the serial killer but then how do you police this area because now you've got thousands of them you've now got the cartels in there haven't you and, and let's, let's be honest they're paying off everyone police and everyone are being paid off really they are let's be honest about it now you've got an area now really unpoliceable now you've got serial killers coming in You've got everyone now coming in. There's criminality throughout this whole place. So I can understand why they didn't look into this case in the big way. And I think it was this detective, uh, Dave Dixon, that really, once the community started saying, hang on a minute, these people are really disappearing. They're really missing. They're not transit. They're not just left. The police aren't neglecting it a little bit. This is when the police, and it was a couple of years later, I think three years after that, that the police really got behind it, and that's why they were sued, and that's why they paid. But they paid because they said it was compensation, really, for sorry, but not that they had admit, admitted any liability at all in uh, the negligence, really, of this investigation. So they got something. But before I finish this case, I want to just talk about these victims because I can't name them all, and I've said that before. We've said about the young girl who had the mental capacity of 10 that was thrown out of an institution. There was another young girl in her 20s that they said she had such a lovely character. She was a lovely girl. She was just another one that was hooked on crack and ended up being a prostitute. But she had a lovely, soft voice, a kind heart, and would do anything for you. We had another one of these victims 
that had set up an organisation to help women come off the streets, to help them not take drugs anymore, to get them help. She was murdered by him. Pigton also murdered a woman who had all previously, about three years prior, been a victim of another serial killer and he had let her go. Let her go. Three years later, she crossed path with Picton and he killed her. I mean, the job alone that these women do, we can't understand it, really, I, I can't. But necessity, I don't, we're talking about here, yes, victims, and they are victims no matter what they do, no matter what living, how they earn their living, no matter if they're a drug addict or not, they're human beings. And I've said before, if they want to take their own life by um, an overdose of drugs or whatever, that would have been their choice. Serial killers don't care what you do, what you look like. They don't. These were just easy victims. Really easy victims. I think the list ended up with about 140 odd people on it, this list in the end. I think there were five on that list that were found um, to have lived and have gone, uh, moved away. They were transit one to five out of the list. But this list is so inconclusive, really. There is no way that that is all there is. They know that. But the type of people, these victims, don't have normal lives. They're not registered, working, people meeting people, going in someone's house for a cup of tea. They may not have seen their family for years. They may have been let out of this institution and had no family and gone straight onto a street and no one cared. And this is why Picton got away with murder for so long, because he chose the right victims. And really, when you think about it, how he thought about why we wouldn't be looking, why people wouldn't care, is what helped him get away with murder. So the judge in this case did in 2018, I think it was, um, he was moved from um, his little prison to a state penitentiary where he is serving hard time. And the judge really wanted that. So listen, this has been the Picton case. Robert Picton, Canadian's worst serial killer ever, I think, or what we know about because they've got a few and I'll be doing a few more of these. I don't know if it puts me off going to cancer a little bit really now. I've read so much about it. But this man, highly dangerous, highly dangerous. He done these murders for sexual gratification. He is sadistic. He chopped these women up. He raped them. He tortured them. He grinded them up. He fed them to his pigs. And he sold them meat. So you know what to do. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. You know, hit that like button. And um, my partner's in crime. I know this is a bit of a gory one, but I think it's a very interesting one. So, till the next time. Bye-bye.